Good afternoon, everybody. I think we'll go ahead and uh, uh, uncharacteristically, I'll try to start us on time. Um, it's really a pleasure to be able to welcome you here today. This is one of those panels um, that really makes me proud and happy to work at the Cato Institute. It's not the sort of panel that you'll see uh, many other places in town. And it's a subject matter that is at first brush, uh, sort of theoretical, sort of academic, um, but I think as you'll hear today, has very significant policy implications for uh, a very important policy issue, perhaps the most important foreign policy issue that the United States will face uh, in the decades to come. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the things that you will hear a broad consensus on in Washington uh, before people going back to doing six months of order of battle calculations in Syria is that the U.S.-China relationship is the most important foreign policy issue uh, facing really the world uh, in the decades to come. And I think you're going to hear a discussion today of one of the crucial conceptual uh, uh, questions about that relationship. How does the U.S.-China economic relationship influence the uh, potential course of the security relationship? Uh, it's an interesting subject. A lot of people have talked about it, but I think you're going to hear uh, a very good discussion, a very sort of wide-ranging discussion of that question situated in a broader context of the, the relationship of economic interdependence to war and security competition. And of course, we're here today centered on Professor Dale Copeland's book by the same name, Economic Interdependence and War. Uh, it really has something for everyone, for the political science nerds, for the his history buffs. Um, I think it checks a lot of boxes, and I think we'll hear uh, a lot of criticism of it from different angles, from scholars who've done their own extensive research on the subject as well. I'll go ahead and introduce uh, Professor Copeland first, and then I think I'll just go ahead and rattle off the panelists' discussants um, thereafter. Professor Copeland is associate professor at UVA. Uh, I'd like to say just down the road, but his having just driven that road, it's not just down the road, it's a really long road. Um, he works on IR theory, in-group, out-group theory, reputation in international politics, and the relationship of international political economy to security studies, as you might have guessed from the book that we're here to discuss today. Um, his previous book, The Origins of Major War, for those of you who have made it through an MA or PhD program, you've already read it. Uh, it's a study of the link between the rise and decline of great powers and the outbreak of devastating systemic wars. He's the recipient of numerous awards, including MacArthur and Mellon Fellowships. He did a postdoc uh, at the Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard. His PhD is from the University of Chicago, and he has a master's from SICE and a bachelor's from Queen's University in Canada. The first discussant uh, today will be David Edelstein, who's associate professor in the Edmund Walsh School of Foreign Service in the Department of Government, actually just down the road at Georgetown. Uh, he's a core faculty member at Georgetown's Security Studies Program and its Center for Peace and Security Studies. He's been working on two big projects, uh, one on the time horizons of political leaders in international politics, and the other, uh, not entirely uh, uninteresting from a policy point of view, examines exit strategies from military interventions, uh, something uh, our American colleagues could do some brushing up on. Um, he was a pre-doc at Stanford's uh, Center for uh, International Security and Cooperation and a postdoc at the Belfer Center at Harvard. 
his first book, first book, right, was Occupational Hazards, Success and Failure in Military Occupation, which we actually had him come here and discuss. We were very happy about that. Uh, his PhD and MA are from the University of Chicago, and his BA is from Colgate University. The second discussant, also no stranger to Cato, is Eric Gartsky, a professor at UCSD. His primary area of study involves the impact of information and institutions on war and peace. Again, very germane to the subject we're here to discuss. He applies a number of methods, including bargaining theory, rational choice institutional theory, concepts of power and social identity, and statistical analysis for substantive areas of research interest. The liberal peace, which he's done extensive work on, uh, also dubbed the capitalist peace, which we'll hear some more about this afternoon. Uh, work on international institutions, on diplomacy, and on the international system itself. He's published big articles on cyber war, if we choose to call it that, nuclear proliferation, audience costs, uh, identity and conflict. His PhD and MA are from the University of Iowa. He also has an MA from Seton Hall, uh, and his bachelor's is from the University of San Francisco. Um, John Mueller, also not a stranger to Cato, is a senior fellow at Cato. He's a member of the political science department at Ohio State uh, and a political scientist with the Mershon Center at Ohio State. He's a leading expert on terrorism and more specifically the overreactions to terrorism uh, that frequently emerge. Uh, his forthcoming book with Mark Stewart is entitled Chasing Ghosts, the Policing of Terrorism. That'll be out in November, John? Does that sound right? Okay. His previous book with Mark Stewart was called Terror, Security, and Money, Balancing the Risks, Benefits, and Costs of Homeland Security. And uh, variations on a theme, overblown, how the politicians and terrorism industry inflate national security threats and why we believe them, and atomic obsession, nuclear alarmism from Hiroshima to Al-Qaeda. He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's been a Guggenheim Fellow, grants from the National Science Foundation and National Endowment for the Humanities. He's also received several teaching prizes, bachelor's degree from Chicago, and MA and PhD from UCLA. So with that, I think I'll turn the podium over to Professor Copeland uh, to give us the, the, the relatively brief version of the book yes. talk, yes, and then uh, we'll have some discussion thereafter. Professor Copeland, thank you. Well, it's great to be here, and I really appreciate the, the invite. Uh, what I'd like to start off with today is what the big question is, and then give you an outline of the theoretical framework I'm coming from, but focus largely on the practical implications of the argument uh, as it relates to the history. And I don't believe we can understand the implications for US-China relations uh, going into the next 20 years without understanding at least something about the, J the Japan and Pearl Harbor case, 1941, as well as the origins of the Cold War. After all, I think the big question on the table for most policymakers is, under what conditions might we get into a Cold War or even something worse with China over the next 10 to 15 years, especially as China continues to grow and to uh, perhaps even overtake the United States in overall economic power, or GNP at least. Now, so the big question on the table here is, does economic interdependence lead to war or to peace? And it's a big question. It's gone back, goes back to Thucydides, really, uh, in the Peloponnesian conflict. But for our modern situation, we have two big positions. 
We have the classic liberal position, which says trade is a good thing. The more we trade with China, the more they are bound to the system. They see the goodies, they see the investment, they see the, the trade gains, and they would not want to go to war or to have military conflict that might sacrifice those gains. So trade is a good thing. Increase that trade with China and you will keep the peace. The realist argument, John Mearsheimer in particular, is no, trade is a bad thing. Or at the very least, trade cre creates vulnerabilities. Great powers in an anarchic, anarchic system do not like dependency. They don't like to feel vulnerable. Think of Japan in the 1930s. And therefore, when they become dependent, as Japan did on oil, and China is very dependent on oil today, foreign oil, uh, they therefore are more likely to go to war, or at the very least expand their militaries and project their power, say, into the Middle East, into Africa, to protect the sources of raw materials, their, their access to trade and investment. Now, let me just talk a little bit about those two big positions, what really underlies them before I talk about some cases and how uh, I view the US-China relationship. So the core idea for the liberals, the liberal position, is that dependency creates these gains from trade, going back to Adam Smith. And the gains from trade are a constraint on any unit level, excuse my, <laughs> domestic level or psychological pathologies within a state. So in other words, there may be psychological problems. Think of uh, Germany going into the early 1930s, but those psychological or domestic problems are constrained because the benefits of trade give leaders an incentive to stay peaceful. Take those gains away, take trade away or investment potential away, and those domestic level pathologies can be unleashed. That is, think of again Germany 1930s, the liberal argument would be as soon as trade fell apart or the trading system fell apart, all those domestic level pathologies, even before Adolf Hitler were unleashed on the system as Germany started to think about war again. Now, the economic realist position, John Mearsheimer again comes to mind, is that as states become more dependent upon the system, that is, as they need the system for key raw materials, vital goods, and markets to keep their economy growing, they feel vulnerable and therefore are more likely to grab opportunities to expand when they see those opportunities arise. It's an opportunistic model which suggests that if I'm dependent now and I see an opportunity to increase control and gain access to raw materials that I wouldn't have otherwise, I'll use my military force, gunboat diplomacy, and the like. Think of Britain in the 19th century. So why are states peaceful? In this logic, aside from power, and that's another aspect of realism, aside from the power dimension, deterrence, uh, trade, if it's low and there's very little dependence, then states don't feel that vulnerability and they're less likely to go to war. So reduce trade with China and you'll keep a relative peaceful, relatively peaceful system. China won't have incentives in particular for expansion. Now I lay out a, a third argument, what I call trade expectations theory. And I'm not going to go through the details here, but I think I can give you the essence of it in a pretty short form. The core idea is that commercial ties can either lead to either peace or conflict, depending upon a third variable, an extra variable, which I call the expectations of future trade. So in essence, it's very simple. If a state is dependent but has positive expectations of the future, it is more likely to stay peaceful. It'll see the benefits of trade, 
feel that it's going to keep growing in relative economic power and therefore want to, want to sustain that trade and therefore sustain the peace. Now, if on the other hand, dependent states have negative expectations for the future, they are either being cut off or they believe they will be cut off in the near term, then they're more likely to be aggressive. They'll believe that they will suffer some costs of adjustment as trade falls. They'll have to re rework their economies to basically compensate for the vulnerability, and that would cause them to go into decline. And in my view, and it's a realist-based view, states in relative economic and military decline are much more likely to go to war. So negative expectations of the future, think of China if it were to be cut off from trade with the US or the rest of the world, would put China in a position of relative decline, not growth, and therefore kick it into a more hardline policy. All right, now, let me start talking a little bit about some of the cases. There is an another aspect of this that we can talk about later, perhaps, in the discussion. It's called, it's what I call the trade security dilemma or the trade security spiral. It's, in essence, it's basically this. If things are going along peacefully because both sides have positive expectations, if something external to the two actors kicks in and causes one state to have negative expectations, it can lead to hardline behavior that feeds back on the other state and causes that state to mistrust the first state and cut it off from economic uh, access. That can only fuel the first state's sense of aggressiveness or belief that it needs aggression or expansion to sustain its access. And that could lead to a spiral that leads you to Cold War or perhaps even war. Now, very briefly on some of the cases, the cases that I cover in the book are basically the universe of great power cases starting with the French in the 1790s, Napoleon and so forth. And I don't want to go into any detail. I'll give you a couple of snapshot views. My views are quite, if you will, revisionist, not in the neo-Marxist neo sense, but revisionist in a more realist sense, that this, these wars of history are really about economics. They're not usually about glory-seeking. They're not usually about personalities. And they're not always about just power. They're about power as it's driven by economics and economic decline. So Napoleon, for example, it's not just about his ego, it's about his fears of Britain and British efforts to cut Napoleon off from the colonial empire that France had built up and to reduce France's long-term economic growth. So in my view, 1803 to 1805, Napoleon starts this huge long war largely to get rid of Britain or to reduce it enough so that it can gain access to raw materials uh, abroad and, and markets abroad. Uh, the Crimean War is actually quite similar, although it looks like a war that nobody really wanted. It's, it's true that no one went into it wanting war, but the Russians were very worried that the Turks were going to close off access to the Straits uh, that, that, that joined the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. And as they started to push hard against the Turks to make sure they could gain access to those uh, that trade and to the export in particular of grain, which Russia needed to do, uh, the British responded and you got a spiral that, that led ultimately to war. Let me talk about one of the most obvious and important parallels to what might happen, and I don't think will happen, but might happen, in the Far East, and that's Japan from 1920 to 1931. Remember that Japan had very good relations with the US in the 1920s. It was growing independence, needing the US for raw materials, in particular oil, uh, but it had good relationship, uh, relationship with Washington. Of course, that fell apart after 1930-31 and the attack on Manchuria. 
and especially after Japan went in more significantly into China in 1937 to 38. Now, why did this happen? In a nutshell, I argue that it had everything to do with the Great Depression and the Great Crash and the Smoot-Hawley tariffs of 1930, where Japan felt it no longer had a stake in the long-term trade relationship with the US and the rest of the world. And as those other great powers moved towards imperial preference, that is closed economic systems, Japan said to itself, as our expectations of the future in trade decline, we therefore need to gain our own economic sphere and make that secure. Moved into Manchuria, moved in to northern China, sparked a war with China. Now, of course, why Pearl Harbor? Why not continue what was relatively peaceful in 1938-39? The essence of this is quite interesting. It's not because Japan was in China and the US was morally outraged. I show that in these negotiations, three negotiations that go on in 1941, from April until very late in November, the US was wanting a peace, a peace deal, that is. They wanted no, pe they wanted no war in East Asia because they wanted to focus on the war against Hitler. Japan actually wanted a peace deal as well, and they got very close to a peace. Uh, the, problem, the problem was that Japan wanted a peace deal with the US so that it could, it could go north and attack the Soviet Union. This is going to be a controversial case, but the essence of the argument is this. Japan wanted to go north to defeat its three-decade-long enemy, the Russians, the growing Russian threat. And this was their perfect opportunity because Hitler had attacked the Soviet Union in June of 41. So in, in a nutshell, Japan would not promise FDR that it would not attack north if it were, if were, if it were to be given oil. Um, and remember, there was a huge oil embargo against Japan starting in July of 41. And FDR asked, kept asking. Japan said, we will not attack you, but we can't promise not to go north. And given that, FDR kept the embargo on, knowing that Japan would probably and would indeed have to go south against Southeast Asia. He didn't, he didn't know anything about Pearl Harbor, but he did know that they would attack Philippines. And what that means, therefore, in essence, is that this third party, this external factor, caused Japan caused the US to keep the sanctions on and caused Japan to go north. We can talk a little bit more about the Cold War and the origins of it, uh, perhaps in the discussion, because uh, I know I see, I see I'm running out of time already. Let me just say that the Cold War is very interesting. Here is FDR trying to hold the Soviet Union in the war in 41 against the Hitler menace and doing this in a way that would draw Japan south to give Stalin a one-front war rather than a two-front war with Japan and Germany. And that saves the Soviets, saves our ass, if you will, and keeps the Soviets in the war so that they can defeat Hitler, the only real threat that the Americans truly believed could take over Eurasia. Now, what does that mean? Stalin wins, and after Stalingrad, he's pushing east, or he's pushing west. And the Americans know this, and they sit down at Tehran and, and, of course, again at Yalta, and they agree that Stalin can have Eastern Europe. Now, we think of the Cold War as largely about, well, he didn't uphold his promises to have free elections in Poland and so forth. I, my research shows that that has nothing to do with it. Both FDR and Truman essentially gave Poland to the Soviet Union. 
What they were upset about is his behavior in Romania and Bulgaria and what it signaled about what would happen to Western Europe if any of those Western European states went communist. Namely, if they went communist, which was a big threat, they would gravitate economically to the Soviet sphere and be cut off from the American sphere. That would cause the US to go into to decline, it would cause the Soviets to grow, and that was unacceptable. So the, Tru the Truman administration, as well as FDR, started to use economic constraints and economic containment as early as mid-45 and early-45 to restrict that ability of the Soviet Union to project its economic influence over Western Europe. That will also be a controversial case, but as I'll show briefly in the last five minutes, that it has a lot to do, or at least has parallels, to what might happen with China, but I don't think will happen. So let me talk about China. Now, in a very straightforward sense, I'm an optimist. Although my argument is realist in its foundations, looking at security maximization and power politics, I'm an optimist. And why am I an optimist? Well, since 1985, really 1980, China has wanted to integrate itself economically into the world economy in a way that the Soviets never really wanted to do. And that is a huge change. It's a change because China truly believes that it's the way to economic growth and stability and, of course, legitimacy for the Communist Party is to have trade with the world, to integrate and become dependent on the world, and use that to grow and grow in economic power. Now, in essence, that's a trade-off that they're having to make. As they grow in economic power and dependence, that's good, but they also, in a realist sense, become more vulnerable and more dependent because they now need foreign raw materials and foreign oil. Now, their strategy, of course, has been one of continuing that dependence, but diversifying the risk, if you will, getting oil from places other than the Middle East, including Russia and Central Asia, but also to try to get raw materials from as many places as they can to reduce dependence on the US Navy. Now, in essence, why am I an optimist? Because I believe China will continue to have, and has had, continue to have positive expectations for the future trade environment. It does not believe that the US is likely or will cut it off economically from markets and from raw materials. Why do they believe that? Why is this not 1945 to 49 when the US did cut off the Soviet Union in the face of a rising uh, potential economic and military threat. Couple of reasons. First of all, China is not the same kind of military threat that the Soviets were in 45. Not to mention the fact that Stalin was at the helm, that's always a threat, but the Soviet Union had about our, the same population as the US. So in per capita GNP, if it ever caught up to the US in GNP terms, it would be a real threat in terms of that surplus needed for projection of power. China is always, will always have about one quarter of the US GNP per capita. One quarter, because of its huge population. And that's a burden on China. It's a burden that means it doesn't have the surplus needed to project the kind of power that the Soviets could have projected, especially if they had over, ever overtaken the US in economic power. The second reason I think the Chinese believe that the US won't threaten them is that they've been going out of their way to show that they want to be integrated into the world economic system, to give the US positive expectations about their character, their desires, to be capitalist with Chinese characteristics, as it's often said, not neo-mercantilist, not Soviet-style uh, totalitarianism. 
It's still certainly authoritarian, but it's different. And that makes all the difference, I think, when you think about trying to contain a growing power. And the final and probably most important aspect of this is that the US and the Chinese have learned from history. They understand what I'm calling this trade security spiral. They understand that if the US starts to use economic containment against China and changes Chinese expectations for the future, makes them negative, the Chinese will react. They'll probably go into an aggressive or more expansionistic mode, and that will cause a spiral of hostility that leads to a new Cold War. Now, a Cold War is what both sides want to avoid, especially since the US also needs China for funding its, its large budget deficits. So in that sense, the US needs China, doesn't want to cut China off, and the Chinese understand that the US doesn't want to cut China off for fear of sparking a Cold War. That makes China want to stay peaceful to continue its growth. It makes the US want to allow that growth because it's the lesser of two evils. It may not like the growth in terms of geopolitics, but it's better than a Cold War and the Cold War that would have been sparked by an economic containment strategy. All right, so I think that's enough for now. It's a short, uh, short overview of the overall argument. I look forward to comments and I hope we have some fun with this. Thanks. Uh, good afternoon. Um, let me start by thanking Justin for the invitation. Uh, it is always good to be back at, at Cato. Uh, and as he mentioned, I have fond memories of the similar event on my own book um, a number of years ago. Um, so uh, let me start with the uh, requisite niceties. Um, this is an important book on an important topic, uh, to be blunt, at a time when um, I and many others fear that political science is uh, sort of heading towards increasingly trivial navel gazing. Uh, it's a gratifying reminder that people can still tackle big theoretical questions uh, in this business and provide compelling, somewhat controversial answers and evidence pertinent to those questions. Um, so I applaud Dale for all of that. Um, and I have little doubt that this is going to be an, an important contribution to one of the really sort of fundamental questions in the study of international relations, which is precisely as the book is titled, Economic Interdependence and War. Uh, Dale has, has uh, I think, effectively summarized the argument, the main argument and the evidence. So I'll um, cut right to the chase and not repeat anything that he said. Um, and suggest, uh, I think it's going to be six different questions about his argument. And I'm going to focus primarily on the argument. Uh, if only I, I commend the cases to all of you, but I think if we get into the nitty gritty of some of the cases, for those of you who haven't read the book, it's going to, I, I think it might not be the best use of our time. So I'm going to focus primarily on, on the theoretical argument. Um, in part, I got through the theory chapter and had more than enough to fill 12 minutes alone. Um, so I kept on reading, but sort of said, you know, let me just just talk about the theory. So I'm going to focus on the theory and make six points. Um, the first one is, uh, and I think we all sort of uh, kind of shrug a little bit when people do this, but I'm going to do it anyway, um, which is I think it's important to mention that Dale makes some what I think are kind of monumental assumptions um, in, in building his theory. Um, and let me just quote the two main ones that I think are uh, important to, to be aware of. And this is from page 27 of the book. Quote, it, meaning the theory, starts with the assumption that leaders of states whose behavior we are trying to explain are primarily concerned with protecting the long-term security of their countries 
and that they operate in a realm of essential domestic autonomy, end quote. Uh, and I think there's good reason to think that both of these assumptions, especially in the area that Dale is studying, are problematic. Um, as Justin mentioned, and as I'll come back to in my remarks, my own research at the moment is on the time horizons of political leaders. That is how they weigh the future versus the present. And I think an assumption that political leaders are always thinking about the long-term security of their countries is problematic. Um, second, uh, I think it, especially in a, a book that is about fundamentally about economics, assuming that political leader, leaders operate in a realm of essential domestic autonomy is problematic, right? Uh, especially in large capitalist economies to basically sort of sidestep the influence of the private sector, right? And how they sort of will affect political leaders in precisely leading them to think more about the short term than the long term um, is, in my view, so that's point number one, is just to highlight um, the assumptions that undergird the argument and that I think might themselves be problematic. Um, comment number two has to do with, and I'm, I'm going back, I was going back to my old sort of uh, undergraduate economics courses um, to pull out the term substitutability um, for uh, Dale's argument. Um, there's something about Dale's argument and sort of this kind of dependence, right, on others that I think misses this fundamental economics concept, right, that you think about sort of substitutability, right? That is, are there goods that you can only get from one place, right? Or is it poten potentially the case that you could go out into other markets and find those goods as well? And this has to do with how you value those goods and what you're willing to pay for them. Um, and in, in terms of Dale's argument, I think he misses the importance of if we're thinking about trade expectations of the future, it's not only how am I going to be trading with Eric in the future, it's whether or not the goods that Eric might deny me in the future, I can then go get it from Justin instead. And if I can, why am I thinking about fighting a war with Eric? Right? And I think in Dale's discussion that he just provided of China, he's actually, he missed this, China has been looking for substitutability. Right? The whole new scramble for Africa that we've heard about. Right? China going to the Middle East to get oil. China getting rare earth metals throughout Central Asia. Right? I don't think they're particularly worried about the US cutting off natural resources to China. I'm not even sure how much they're getting natural resources from the United States because they're, provide, they're finding other markets in which they can get what they need. Now, their ability to sell the goods, that's a different issue. Right? Right? And I think it is important to think about um, the kind of US export market for China and the role and whether or not that is substitutable. But um, I think I was, I was sort of wished there had been more of a discussion of this, this issue of substitutability. Third, um, Dale mentioned but didn't really discuss in detail um, uh, this trade security dilemma. Uh, and what I'll say here is, is for any of you who have studied the security dilemma, probably many of you, one of the traditional security dilemma, right, which in many ways this trade security dilemma sort of shadows, one of the issues with the traditional security dilemma, right, going to any PhD seminar and say, what's the problem with the security dilemma, right, or a master seminar for that matter? And one of the critiques of it is it gets us to crisis, but it does not get us to war, right? The security dilemma can explain how two actors can sort of spiral into a crisis, but itself has difficulty explaining why one actor then decides, okay, we're in this crisis, I'm going to launch a war. And I think there's a similar parallel problem with, with Dale's argument, right? I can, I'm willing to buy, sort of, I'm willing to buy his argument for the ways in which trade expectations can generate crisis between actors. 
What I'm missing is why one of those actors then decides that the way to solve this ultimately is to go to war, right? That it's actually going to be beneficial for me to go to war to do this. Now, there is one exception to this that may, uh, in fact, hold true, right, and make the argument that, and, and make the, the sort of logic of the argument complete which is that one would go to war potentially if what one was going to achieve through the war was good old-fashioned seizure of sort of territory that is rich in some natural resource that you need for your economy. Right? And I'm sure we can, and Dale does highlight, cases historically which this has been true. Right? And one could even imagine in contemporary times that this is true. But and this goes to point number four, is that I think the book sort of uh, downplays, ignores, does not pay enough attention to the changes in the modern economy and in the global economy. Now, I am not going to be the one to critique Dale for doing historical case studies. I have great admiration for historical case studies. It's the type of work that I do myself. But I think it is problematic to assume that the nature of the global economy, as it was two centuries ago, is the same as it is today. And I'm thinking here of uh, Steve Brooks, very important work on the changing nature of global production. Right? For those of you who don't know Steve's work, he's a professor at Dartmouth. He argues in his first book that basically the nature of economic interdependence, the nature of the global economy has changed in that sort of old-fashioned trade in goods is no longer what the kind of dominates the global economy. Multinational corporations have spread out all over the world. It's very difficult to figure out what the home country of particular companies is and sort of down the road and thinking about the ways in which the economy has changed. So the question is, has the structure of the modern economy, that is the structure of global production, changed in such a way that the lessons derived from these older cases of economic interdependence and the way in which they led to conflict, older cases in which what might have been at stake was legitimately control over particular territorially bound resources in a way that, say, kind of the internet economy is not. Can those cases, how much can those cases teach us about understanding the contemporary cases? Fifth, um, and this here again starts to tie into my own work and sort of kind of cuts at things that are in my own, my own uh, sort of field of view at the moment, which is how exactly do leaders anticipate the future? Now, Dale, I think in his argument, he provides reasons for why states might actually change their trade behavior why they might think it's in their interest to change their trade behavior. But I don't think he as effectively lays out why a leader might believe that another is going to change its behavior with regard to future trade. At least not in a sort of, I think he does it effectively in the cases, but I don't think he provides uh, as effective a sort of deductive uh, theoretical logic for how they do it. How do leaders anticipate the future and make predictions about what is likely to happen in their trade with another state in the future? And if one were to develop a kind of more deductive theory of this, would one discover that trade expectations are actually a proxy for something else underlying those expectations, some sort of political or security issue that is informing those beliefs about future trade expectations? And if that's the case, is there a point at which the argument becomes spurious, right? Is there a point at which the argument becomes there is some deeper underlying variable that is causing both trade expectations and um, sort of increased tension between 
to particular countries. All right. Sixth and finally uh, is to draw attention to what um, economists would call, political scientists would call, um, discount factors. Um, so as I mentioned, my own work is thinking about precisely how states think about the future. How do they deal with what I call now or later dilemmas in international politics or what others might call discount factors? That is the extent to which you discount the future, right? The extent to which you are sort of so bound to the present for political or economic reasons that you discount future payoffs. So going back to the assumption, the assumption that leaders are concerned with the long-term security of their countries, it is assumed there is an implicit assumption in there about the discount factors, the discount rates of political leaders. It is assumed that future expectations are critical and that they're highly valued, but if one opened the analysis up, say, to domestic influences, the other critical assumption, that may not be the case. Thus, I think you have what some would see as myopic American behavior vis-a-vis -a, -vis a growing China over the last two decades. Right? There are certainly many who have critiqued the extent to which the United States has in fact been enriching China, looking forward to a day when China may in fact threaten the United States. So, in sum and in conclusion, this is a stimulating and important book. I commend it to all of you. Um, again, I haven't discussed the case studies, um, but they in inductively answer many of the more theoretical questions that I have just asked. Um, I'm just looking for some sort of more deductive basis for those answers. Um, thanks for the opportunity to comment, to participate today, and I look forward to our discussion. Thanks. Okay, well, thank you, audience, for coming here today. Um, uh, academic conferences uh, are large groups of scholars that get together and they have panels and at the panels people give papers that the audience hasn't haven't read and don't understand and then an individual will get up and make abstruse comments about the papers that the audience hasn't read um, which they don't understand and I have a feeling that there's some flavor of that here potentially I hope you've all read the book and if you haven't please please do so um, I think maybe at that point, the comments that we're giving on, on this book will, will, will have uh, more value to you. Um, so with, with that sort of caveat and apology for, again, talking about something uh, in, in almost uh, sort of a closed discussion in front of you, um, uh, let me uh, start by, again, uh, I, think it, I think it's important to put this in the context. This is almost 500 pages long. Uh, the coverage of the subject is enormous and extensive. Uh, the case studies are entertaining, and Dale is a very good advocate for his ideas. Uh, there are a large number of ideas here to advocate, and the insights are extremely engaging. I think Dale has gone as far as anyone to integrate this huge literature and uh, create a quantity of ideas that I think will cause 
scholars like myself and others to, to pick through this for some long time. I think about the, the, the Apollo moon missions. Apparently, they're still poking at rocks that came back in the 1960s or early 70s from the moon. Uh, so this is a long-term activity. And I think in some ways, one of the most appealing things about the project is the number of sort of um, lights that have been shined into different places we haven't looked before. Um, but I think also, because of the comprehensive nature of this, this endeavor, that there's, there, there's, some, there, there's some room for improvement. Um, and I've been trying to think about how to present this to you in a way that would be useful and helpful to you. And the best that I could come up with, and admittedly it's not very good, I apologize again, um, is Rube Goldberg. Do you remember the old cartoons of these uh, very implausible, elaborate mechanisms that are designed to do rel relatively pedantic things like boil an egg or, or uh, light the gas on, on, uh, on the furnace or whatever? Um, so in a sense, um, what, what Dale gives us is a Rube Goldberg contraption of theory. And this is not his fault. It's an inherent feature of the subject matter that he's grappling with. It's an enormously complex topic. Uh, I have to give it to Cato, I give hands to Cato, because uh, they're not interested in doing things by half. Merely boring people with IR theory wouldn't be good enough for Cato. We need to confuse and bore them at the same time. Okay, so we go for the jugular, we get the most confusing, abstruse IR theory that there is, and we get it in large doses. So, What's wrong with this Rube Goldberg contraption? Well, it's not, um, it's not wrong in its totality. I think it's, it's, it's very ambitious and appealing uh, of framework. But I think that there are bits and pieces that don't quite connect. There are spots where the ball is going to drop instead of continue to roll or get caught in one of the mechanisms. And that what we will do, like with those moon rocks that came back from the moon, is spend a lot of time trying to fix those details to make the whole story hold together just a little bit. And I'm going to give you some examples of these, and I hope they make some sense to you. I'm not even sure I understand them. So I'm, I'm placing it in, those contact, in, in that context. Okay, so one of the things that confuses me from the outset is that the way the theory is set up emphasizes asymmetry between the actors. One actor is more dependent than the other actor. And this is a very appealing and intuitive way to go about things theoretically. But empirically and in the rhetoric of the discussion, the book is very concerned with great powers. And these are about the least asymmetric actors you can have in the international system. So either it's looking at the wrong cases for the theory, I think, or it's got the wrong emphasis in the theory on the kind of cases that it should look for. I think in many respects that this is a broader theoretical set of claims than Dale uh, and the text give it credit for. Okay, um, why does the theory, why does the theory that champions expectations, and this is the single most important theoretical contribution, Dale is clear about this in the text, expectations are this important insight that we can have about this process. Why, if expectations about trade are so important to understanding trade and conflict, is there not much attention to expectations about conflict in understanding trade and conflict? Okay? And I think, in fact, this is where the literature has gone in studying conflict. It's less and less interested in how the world is 
and more and more interested in how it appears to the actors who are engaging in those competitions and conflicts. And when they get it wrong, that's when it's dangerous. When you get it right, it's a little bit safer. Okay. So what is the theory of war here? The term conflict is used all the time in the study of conflict. And it conflates two very important but distinct processes. One is the competition that actors have when they both want the same thing or they both want uh, different agendas or whatever and when they compete. And the other is how they go about resolving those conflicts. How do you win? Do you win through votes? Do you win through rhetoric, through discussion? Do you win through force of arms? Okay, so the factors that motivate actors to compete are not necessarily synonymous with the factors that cause them to choose a way to compete and win. All right, and in this text, this is not a special flaw for Dale, but it is a flaw that the literature has repeated endlessly, and to me, I think it's an extremely important issue, is that war is not a product of a lot of the factors that we think it is. Conflict and competition are a product of those factors. Whether conflict and competition then produce war is a question of whether we cannot resolve our differences, our competition in other ways. And in fact, in every setting in politics, most of the time what we do is we resolve those conflicts, those competitions peacefully. That's why war is relatively rare. Okay, so not completely comfortable with that. And I think, in fact, there's a little bit of slippage here in terms of the theory of war throughout the theoretical section of the text. There are different ideas being posed and then kind of withdrawn a little bit and something else comes in. Okay, So how does the theory of war relate to this, this logic of expectations, trade expectations? Um, trade expectations, this is a quote from the text, are, um, augment um, excuse me, the trade expectations argument accepts the liberal point that trade and investment flows can lead to peace by giving states an incentive to avoid militarized conflict and war. You got all that? I didn't. Um, it's basically the theory, the liberal theory that we've had for trade and conflict for a long time. And I think that he, Dale does himself a little bit of disservice here because he's pushing against this theory for a while, and then he gives it a great big hug and says, this is okay. And I wanted him to poke it in the eye a bit more because he started really giving it a hard time. Basically, this is the liberal model. And expectations then become an ornament. It's the Baroque era, and we're going to put naked babies on things to make them look different, but they're really the same. Right? And the risk here is, I don't think this has to be true, but the risk here is that expectations become an ornament for a fundamentally liberal theory. And then the question is, what, what's the value added here? What do we learn from talking about expectations that we didn't, didn't have before? OK. And I think the liberal model is fundamentally thought, flawed. It is not a good model of how trade affects conflict. Okay. A little bit of inside baseball argument here. There's a critique of signaling, and then this very peculiar thing happens because as Dale's argument develops, it's about signaling because expectations are about actors' beliefs, 
and their beliefs are what they think and what they observe and what they believe in their heads, what they, th what they cognate, and that can be manipulated and influenced strategically by how other actors present themselves. We're in Washington, for crying out loud. You know all about this, okay? So that's signaling. That's exactly what signaling is. So this is really an informational signaling model that doesn't want to admit that it's an informational signaling model. Okay. Then some other things happen. Towards the end of the theoretical section, there's some weird stuff that comes in. And I'm not sure it even needs to be there. But maybe it does, but I couldn't figure this out. So domestic politics shows up and third parties, and they become important in determining when or whether you get this break from cooperation to basically not cooperation. And the theory was really nice and elegant in some sense by focusing on, and, and, and Dale takes his hard position, I'm, I'm going to take the realist assumptions, I'm going to use a status model, I'm not going to talk about what's going on inside the state, and then suddenly he's talking about what's going on inside the state, and he finesses this a little bit by talking about what's going on inside other states, but that's not really, that's not really uh, a kosher, I think. That's bringing it in the back door, and I think that's probably not convincing uh, to me and perhaps to others. Um, and then... Um, <clears throat> So, and this also happens with a discussion of types. Types come into play, and it's not clear where they came from. So there's, there's moderate types and there's tough types. And we can imagine a world in which actors differ, but that's not the world that we started with. So it's introduced, and that's an interesting concept, and maybe it's, uh, it's the way other political scientists sometimes do things, and maybe that's a reasonable way to do things, but it's not the way that the theory began. Okay. Um, I'm going to echo... Um, what David said before about the endogeneity argument. Um, there's partial endogeneity here. If you become a trading state, then you look down the future and you can see everything. You become omniscient because you buy stuff from Costco, right? Um, but before this, there's, none, there's nothing, okay? You're in the veil of ignorance, and then you become a trading state and you become omniscient. And I mean, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but basically that's the way the theory is laid out. And that's problematic because if you can anticipate while you're trading, that there are problems with trading. Why can't you anticipate it before you start trading? And that should cause you to behave in ways that are different than the theory predicts, I think. Uh, a second and final point is the endogeneity between conflict and trade itself. As Morrow and others have pointed out, there are very good reasons for states who are fighting not to trade as opposed for states who are trading not to fight. Okay? It could be a chicken or egg issue in which we got the direction backwards, and that could lead to correlation that's not causation. I'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. Okay, great to be here. Glad you could turn out for this. Um, the uh, 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 Dale's book uh, is one of those awkward things from my standpoint because um, although I disagree a lot with a lot of the theory, I agree a lot with some of the policy outcomes that come out of the theory. I have that same problem with John Mearsheimer from time to time. Um, and uh, so I'd like to talk about both of those and put it in a somewhat different uh, context and just be pretty brief here. Um, uh, one is the issue of the title, namely Economic Interdependence and War. 
Uh, it seems to me, overall, that there's a bunch of reasons why economics doesn't necessarily, economic interdependence, in fact, doesn't lead to, uh, uh, necessarily lead to peace. There has to be two, actually it's several assumptions, but two in particular. One is, and it's not obvious, that getting rich is the most important thing in the world. Economic growth, economic development, economic wealth. And the other is, even if you do think economic wealth is a good thing, uh, you also have to want to believe that you can get rich by trading rather than through conquest. Let me deal with both those two and then try to apply them both to China and to um, the Soviet Union, to Russia. Uh, before the 19th century, uh, well, if you go to uh, Hamlet, I'll start there, be well before the 19th century, uh, he, uh, Act 4, Scene 4, he talks about um, uh, what is it to be great? And what uh, to be great is to greatly find quarrel in a straw when honor's at the stake. Doesn't matter about anything else. If your honor is besmirched, you go to war. And until basically this century, the last century, 21st and 20th century, um, you could find endless number of people, philosophers, historians, journalists, uh, saying the following, th what, what, contrasting war uh, favorably to peace. Uh, they considered war to be beautiful, honorable, holy, sublime, heroic, ennobling, natural, virtuous, glorious, cleansing, manly, necessary, progressive, and redemptive. On the other hand, peace, they tend to be, see, was, was tied up with materialism, artistic decline, effeminacy, selfishness, immorality, stagnation, frivolity, cowardice, boredom, sensuality, corruption, utter emptiness, and death. I didn't make up any of those words. Those are all direct quotes. Uh, let me give you one quote from Immanuel Kant, the great liberal thinker, uh, who said in 1790, uh, a prolonged peace favors the predominance of a mere commercial spirit and with it a debasing self-interest, cowardice, and effeminacy that tends to downgrade the character of a nation. Uh, consequently, uh, economics is not very important. All these other things, honor in particular and its various guises, are far more important. So you go to war and you don't give a damn about, um, about, uh, about economic development and economic wealth. In many respects, the idea that you got rich that, that uh, economic growth was possible is very recent. Maybe it, it, it actually happened in the 19th century, uh, but I think it was only appreciated in the 20th, that, you, that it was not a zero-sum game, but that you could actually grow. Uh, a country could grow, get richer than it was five years ago or 10 years ago or 100 years ago. Uh, and there's a good reason why it took so long to do it, because it had never happened. Uh, basically, economic growth, as we know it today, and the whole, therefore the whole concept of it, didn't really start until maybe 1800 or so. And then it wasn't appreciated very much. Um, so the whole idea that you could actually grow economically uh, was not there. Basically, it was a zero-sum game, essentially. If I get rich, it must be somebody else is going to be equally uh, getting poor. Uh, uh, wealth can be neither created nor destroyed. It's going to be moved around about. So unless you don't, have, unless you don't see that, uh, there's no particular reason to uh, uh, not engage in conquest to do it. Um, in, in fact, uh, at the end of the 19th century, there was a whole lot of economic interdependence, as frequently pointed out, uh, in Europe. Um, and a lot of people thought that, that was, man, that's really great, because now we can have a lot of wars. The problem with wars, with other glorious, beautiful, multiple, sublime, and so forth, uh, qualities that are ennobling, natural, vir virtuous things, uh, was that people tend to get, they're kind of messy. People got killed in them, and they screwed up uh, lifestyles for a while. 
But economic interdependence meant that countries in a very sophisticated uh, situation now can't have long wars. They can only have short wars because if they're really long, everything will fall apart because of the interconnection of the economy. So consequently, that's really a good thing, so let's go to war because we can have all the beauties of it and the, and the bad side would be relatively minimized. Um, so if you have that kind of perspective, basically, economic interdependence does, if anything, causes people to want, these kinds of people at least, to want war more than others. Um, the other, so that's one aspect, basically, you need economic, you have to believe, you have to want to get rich. And wanting to get rich is not something that's uh, acceptable. Aristotle, Plato, put traitors and so forth like that at the very bottom of their pecking order of admirable people or disadmirable people. The other thing is basically the idea that trade is the best way to get wealth. The logical thing, even if you want to get rich, how does that fit to, to, to war? And the answer is, well, it's perfectly plausible. The way you get rich is you conquer other people with war. You take them over and you incorporate them into your own territory, kill off the people who get in the way, and you, and you get rich that way because you steal their property. Um, and so it took another big effort uh, basically, in the, over the course of the 20th century, to suggest that trade is a better way to get wealthy than um, than conquest. So you really need both of those assumptions. You want to get getting rich is a good thing, not obvious, and that conquest is a, is the worst way of getting ready, uh, trade is a better way of getting rich than conquest to do so. Um, now, if you bring that into the 20th century, and uh, this is the policy thing I like a lot in Dale's book, the good thing he did talk about, which is the China issue. It seems to me uh, we're in pretty good shape in that respect because China really does want to get rich. I mean, they really bought into that. In fact, more than almost any country I can think of, it's sort of their deal with the people. You get rich, leave us the party in control, uh, and uh, getting rich uh, is, uh, is really what it's all about. Um, it, uh, it doesn't matter how you get there, whether the cat is black or white, but getting rich is a good thing. And they basically accepted that big time. Uh, more than any place else. And also, it seems to me that China is not very interested in conquest. Uh, there's no real, it's a, basically a trading state. It, it, it sells and it buys, to use uh, Richard Rosecrans's term, a uh, trading state. And so consequently, the idea, it doesn't really seem to have territorial ambitions of taking over a country, uh, to, or, or uh, if it needs oil, not by conquest, but by basically by getting it by trade. So that could change. Uh, it could be that the Chinese eventually decide that fighting over a bunch of submerged rocks in, in the China Sea is what it's all about, and they don't care about economic uh, 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 development that much. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be that that's very likely. So in that respect, I think we're in pretty good shape, as uh, Dale emphasizes, uh, using somewhat different argument. Uh, let me make two other points on this before closing. Um, one is that uh, there may be, and here I'm thinking in particular about what happened when somebody went against the issue, namely uh, Vladimir Putin and the issue in the Ukraine. There may be existing something which could be called an economic doomsday machine. Uh, those of you with long enough memories remember perhaps the idea of the doomsday machine back in the 50s. The idea was a nuclear thing, so that if, if the idea was you, you'd, set, you'd set up your retaliatory forces uh, automatically. So if the bad guy uh, struck you, there was nothing you could do about it. You would automatically retaliate against him. There's no question about you might have second thoughts and so forth because you didn't have control. So it's a doomsday machine. He started, he did, and Dr. Strangelove has this in it. Uh, the, the country starts it, then triggers the retaliation. And that may, is supposed to make it more credible. Uh, we may have something, but the point of the thing is it's not conscious. It doesn't happen. It, it will happen no matter what. You, uh, 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 there's, nothing, there's no way to stop it. 
uh, and we may be in that position with economic, uh, currently with economics. Um, if you want to get, uh, get rich, uh, basically war is a really bad idea and people are increasingly seeing it happening that way. Uh, and the, the Ukraine experience may suggest some of the parameters of this, uh, because even though this is a relatively minor incursion compared to, you know, World War II and so forth, um, that a lot of th bad things, a lot of bad things happened to Russia uh, that were automatic. The ruble fell, uh, the stock market fell, the decline, uh, there's a huge decline of foreign investment. All those would happen, uh, you know, nobody said let's do that. There are, there are, there are policies that were uh, explicit, namely sanctions. Somebody had to say we're going to sanction, so that's, that's not a automatic doomsday kind of situation. Uh, but basically the issue of, the, um, of, uh, of people not investing, it's just because this is a bad place to put money in. It's just a pure market uh, thing happening. And the fourth thing, there's, so the first thing is the currency falling, the stock market falling, uh, the investment falling, and the, and the fourth thing is, is confidence. If you think long term, this is really, really, really stupid from the standpoint of, of, of uh, Putin. Uh, because basically, no one's going to trust him, and maybe not Russia, for a long time. The Europeans, of course, they, they're one of their biggest trading partners, maybe their biggest, are already working to try to get out from under the control that they might have by being too dependent um, uh, on, on Vladimir Putin. Uh, so consequently, you have this automatic sort of effect. Um, now, it only works if you really want to get rich. Putin has said, I, you know, sometimes I, being rich is not the most important thing. The most important thing is to have a bunch of thugs running the eastern part of Ukraine or Crimea. Um, or, um, the, um, uh, uh, but, uh, but the other doomsday machine didn't work either that way. If you didn't care about how many people were killed, then the doomsday machine won't work. For example, Mao Zedong used to say in the 50s, cheerfully enough, well, we have 600 million people. The United States has 200 million people. We have a thermonuclear war. We lose 200 million. They lose 200 million. We've got 400 million left over. They're zero. We win. Now, if you have that kind of thinking, then obviously you're not going to be deterred. But if you really want to get rich uh, using the economic doomsday machine, and I think these countries generally do, um, it's going to work. Okay, one final uh, comment on this, and the question about peace and economic interdependence. It seems to me that strong argument can be made for the fact that peace, uh, that economic interdependence doesn't cause peace, but that peace causes economic interdependence. That what happens is war and the possibility of war is a trade barrier. There's a lot of reasons why you can have trade barriers. There can be mercantilistic uh, uh, policies and there can be other, other things. Um, but uh, all, all the things equal, basically, if you don't have war, if you do have, if, if you're worried about war, you don't necessarily deal with the other person. Uh, but what happened is in Europe, in particular, for example, is this peace developed? It's a, it's a miracle, basically, it's one of the European miracles. And the, everybody agreed, let's not do war again. Well, you wait for a while to see if that's really real, and maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. But as longer you deal with it, you know, we don't have to worry about France and Germany don't have to worry about getting into a war with each other. So consequently, you might as well go over there and see if they have anything to buy or to sell. Uh, and so economic independence, assuming it's let, the government let, it leaves it free, uh, can basically uh, lead to increased, um, uh, the peace can lead to increased economic interdependence. The idea that the peace of Europe is caused by the economic interdependence, I think, is just completely wrong, or by various norms that have been put together. Uh, the, the peace has caused the economic interdependence. Uh, we're also seeing that with the end of the Cold War. Once the end of the Cold War went, 
um, the, the, uh, the, the possibility of conflict, of a real major armed conflict, went down. Um, and uh, the, the, uh, there's a huge increase in economic interdependence between East and West that wasn't there previously. Um, so it seems to me in many respects the, the causal notion that is very common uh, has it uh, in reverse. Okay, thanks for your attention. Thank you, John. As I just told Professor Copeland, I think it's only fair for him to, you can, if you want to just stay and then I'll direct him. Oh, then stand away. Um, I thought I'd give him a chance to respond to some of the stuff. So five or so minutes and then we'll go. Sure, great, thanks. Uh, thanks for the comments from, uh, from the panel. Uh, let me say that I, I'm not gonna talk too much about what uh, John Mueller uh, just went through because um, it doesn't go after the heart of the book um, the way the other two do and I, feel important, important to, uh, to try to respond to Eric and, and David. Uh, let me say with David's comments, I won't go through them all, but in terms of assumptions, uh, monumental assumptions about long-term security and the realm of assuming that these actors, these executives are autonomous domestically, as I, as I, as I suggest on page 28, this is just an assumption to get the theory going. This is a, an assumption that allows us to make a predictive model, assuming that executives are concerned about security, which is the realist foundation for the argument. So the real question there becomes, does it work in practice? That is, in the cases. So this is the question that I pose. Let's look at the universe of great power cases from 1790. There's 40 different case periods in this book. So it is there's covering a lot of history here. And let's ask this big question. How often is it true, or often is it the case, that this argument actually works when you look at the documents? And I'm arguing often it doesn't work. Often domestic politics does play a role. But what's so interesting for me is in terms of the states that actually end up initiating these conflicts, they are not driven by domestic politics most often. One case I can think of out of the 40 that's clearly domestic. Uh, they are driven by systemic variables, fears of decline, fears of the future, and very often these economic variables are fundamental to those fears. So, uh, you know, the, the panelists mentioned they didn't really read much beyond the, the theory cases, the theory chapters. I would really recommend people go through the cases in detail because they, that's where the, the rubber meets the road. That's the proof of the pudding. And there I can show sometimes it works, but often it doesn't work. That's okay. But that's what we should be doing in theory, is asking how often does a theory with these kinds of assumptions actually work. The substitutability question was covered in the book, so I won't go through it. Uh, footnote 37, page 36, if you want, uh, about alternatives and how that affects the level of dependency. Uh, but then the question that, that he poses is, well, the security dilemma gets us, gets us into crisis, but it doesn't lead us to war. Well, that's exactly right. And I have a diagram on, I think it's page 49, which shows that this trade security spiral gets you into a, a situation of fearing the future. And if you also fear decline, then you go to a preventive motivation. So this is not Jervis security dilemma preemptive war, a la World War I, but a preventive motivation that says, I'm in decline, I'm Japan 41, if the US is not going to give me oil back and I can't negotiate myself into an oil deal, I will have to attack. So it's a pessimistic model, but there's a clear link between the conflict that Eric talks about, that 
causing an increase in spiraling of hostility to the link to actual war. And again, to counter Eric's point, we have to look at the cases. We have to say, did this really occur this way? Or is it spurious, as David seems to claim, or maybe you know, off track, as, as Eric claims? Well, unless we've read the cases, we can't make that judgment. And my argument would be, go to the cases, and you'll see incredible amounts of evidence. I was surprised on how these linkages happened between expectations, crisis, mistrust, security dilemma spirals, and actual preventive wars chosen by actors after they've been in conflict for quite a while. Let me go to a couple of smaller points here. Uh, discount factors, myopic. Well, again, it's a matter of whether we uh, use an assumption that gets the theory going. David seems to assume that, that leaders are myopic. And the US has been stupid to have been trading with China for the last 30 years. Must have been short-term domestic politics. Well, one of my uh, grad students, or former undergrad, who's now a Rhodes Scholar uh, in Oxford, Joe Riley, has interviewed over 100 different key policymakers over the last uh, policymakers over the last 30 years, and he shows that this is exactly what they're thinking. They're saying, we're in a dilemma here. We have to let China grow because the alternative is to cut them off and cause a Cold War, just as what happened with the Soviet Union. So what's our choice here? We have to let this trade continue. Yes, it benefits domestic constituents. We don't deny that. But from our point of view, from a security-maximizing long-term perspective, 20 years into the future, we have to keep China on the road to being a responsible stakeholder in the system. And to start, economic sanctions would, would only drive them into a Cold War with us. And finally, they all omit this too. We can't even do it like we did against the Soviet Union because the Europeans and the Japanese this time around are not going to be allied with us on an economic COCOM, that's the economic sanctions against the Soviets, a stark, hardline economic warfare strategy. The allies won't go along with it. It'll be leakage to them, uh, that is, they'll go, China will, I mean, China will just simply trade with them, get the technology they need, and will be left out of the economic system. So it's actually a very tough choice, and they're making the lesser of two evils choice, which is a good thing, because it keeps the peace. And finally, um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Eric's points here. Uh, I hope these aren't dead rocks from the moon that we're talking about here. But the, he mentions asymmetry, but he misses the point. These are asymmetries of economic interdependence, not power. Not power. So Japan vis-a-vis -vis the US in 1929 is very asymmetrical. It needs the US, and all we get from Japan is some silk products. They need our oil. That asymmetry throughout history, as I mentioned in one footnotes, is very powerful. The irony is that true symmetry of economic interdependence is very rare, but it's currently with the US and the Chinese. And this is not like Japan and the US, and that's great. That's a great thing because true symmetrical interdependence, where both sides need each other, by my logic, should cause positive expectations on both sides, because neither side wants to really be cut off. And that leads to moderate behavior, which fuels this positive trade spiral, if you will, spiraling towards a good thing, virtuous cycle. And that should keep the peace. Asymmetries like Japan, US, 1920s are very problematic. Um, and I'll, I'll just, last thing I'll say, is that uh, Eric seems to think this is somehow a liberal argument. 
I say on page six to eight, very definitively, this is not a liberal argument. This is founded on realist power politics. It's founded on the assumption of security maximization. And the cases show definitively that the liberal argument does not work. Because when trade falls, it's security that kicks in, not these pathologies at the domestic level. If you get it through your minds, and this is very important, that the liberal argument says as trade falls, domestic pathologies get unleashed, Hitler is the example, uh, then, then you understand that that is a very rare occurrence. That's not how trade is linked to war. Trade is linked to war through security states fearing the future, fearing the long-term future, not short-term, and therefore taking steps towards preventive conflict. Thanks. And I look forward to comments from the, uh, the crowd. Thank you all very much. I think it's a testament both to the, the scale of the undertaking uh, as well as to the quality of the panel that we've had such a broad-ranging discussion. Uh, now it's your turn. Uh, so if you will, please wait for me to call on you. It's very hard to see past these Klieg lights. Um, please may, wait till you get a microphone. And uh, please ask a short, direct, uh, very biting question of one of the panelists. Uh, right there in the back in the middle, Professor Shah. The microphone isn't on, can you, yeah. Hi. Uh, I'm very attracted by uh, uh, Professor Copeland's uh, interpretation for historical events, yet I disagree with some of the uh, judgments on China, uh, especially on those uh, says China is not uh, that aggressive, uh, like uh, Michael uh, Peaceberry in his book, a recent book is called uh, The Hundred Years Marathon, uh, China's uh, secret uh, strategy to uh, replace America as a superpower. And he said, uh, now China gets less threat than that of the 10 years ago. Uh, i just give you an example. The 10 years ago, there's a, a major general called Zhu Chenghu. Uh, he mentioned that uh, he, uh, China would have their uh, campaign to attack uh, Taiwan if the U.S. tried to use a missile. Uh, China would use the nuclear weapons. Also, uh, uh, PLA has prepared well that uh, in China, uh, they will have the destruction of the hundreds of the cities uh, east of Xi'an. And that means also uh, the hundreds of cities will be destroyed by China in the U.S. So in recent <coughs> years, there's such a more and more uh, hawks in China. Uh, they, they said that now it's a good time to, uh, to compete with U.S. and even fight with U.S. So I, my warning is that don't uh, uh, underestimate that, uh, the threat. Sure. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Let's take a couple uh, more uh, all the way right there if you turn around, sir. There you go. Thank you. Um, thanks for the forum. Steve Luckett, I work and study here in the city. Mr. Edelstein, thanks a heap for joining us today. I know you could have easily... Uh, uh, feigned a uh, two-and-a-half-hour cold and joined the good folks over in Gaston where the president was meeting with Arthur Brooks and a number of other folks, so thanks a whole lot. In the interest of full disclosure, I uh, am one among the, um, the number of folks uh, who uh, sat for a twice-weekly survey with uh, Mr. Copeland in the basement of Cabell Hall a good number of years ago. So uh, welcome, sir, and uh, safe travels back home. In a way, to pick up on Mr. Miller's um, remarks, uh, looking at you and, and hearing about... Uh, World War I and signaling, I, I go immediately back to um, uh, Bettmann-Holweg, uh, 
when the Kaiser told him, you know, it's, it's your stew, uh, you eat it now. Um, Mr. Putin's got his um, minerals, as our British buddies would say, in a sling. Um, the rubles in the toilet, uh, Sochi might have been considered a distraction, but for all intents and purposes now, there's occupation in, uh, in an area that uh, was thought long settled. So how much more stew uh, do you suspect Mr. Uh, Mr. Putin is going to eat, Mr. Copeland? And thanks. Maybe, yeah, disconnect between, you take a, let's take a couple more. All right, right down here, gentleman in the blue tie. I can see that far. Is it blue? I hope. Gosh, okay. Hi, Carl Golliver. I'm going to try to sneak in two quick questions. Uh, Professor Copeland, um, after World War II, the Bretton Woods Agreement was found necessary to have an honest unit of account in which to conduct trade in a stable manner. And since we've gone away from that, and the dollar is now the international reserve currency, but backed by OPEC oil, in a sense, doesn't that skew a lot of things? And wouldn't we be beneficial in, in working towards peace to go towards a new Bretton Woods a stable monetary agreement? Because we kind of militarized the dollar. We you know, threatened to cut people off from the system if they don't play uh, the way we like. Second question, uh, Professor Edelstein. I've read recently about the history of, well, the Georgetown University, the Jesuit order, the military order of the Roman church, nearly 500 years very involved in history in international trade and also in moving the chess pieces around in decisions of peace and war as even coming from the superior general of the order in, uh, in Rome. To what extent is the, you know, the, the Jesuit order just completely unseen but a, a factor in, I, I know they've owned Bank of America and Lockheed Martin as majority shareholders uh, not long ago. Let's get another one into the, into the hopper here. Uh, anybody else right there on the aisle? I'm uh, John Glazer. I work here at Cato. I just want to ask a question about something that was said very at the at the very end. Can there. you speak up a little? We're having a yeah. There you um, go. By Professor Copeland, um, can you talk about instances in which domestic pathologies overcome or override um, high trade where it's profitable and things are going well? Right. So we have. China, Russia, instances where domestic politics overtake your theory. You can stay there and I'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Thank you. Is this working? Yes. Okay, so. great. Uh, well, thanks for the comments. Uh, the, to the first question about China and whether China is becoming more hawkish, I think what you can say about a rising power is that as it becomes more powerful, in a snapshot sense, it's going to want to defend itself more against you know, th what it perceives to be threats to its interests. So China's reaction to Japan's control of those, the islands off, off the east, in the East China Sea, or the Spratleys, yes, that, that does fit with the rising China logic of, you know, we're more powerful, we're going to defend ourselves. But my argument in both books is the following, that a rising power, as it's still rising, in other words, as it sees the trend, has a good reason to stay moderate. Moderate in the crunch, that is. It's going to defend itself, but it's going to pull back if, if, it's, if it meets confrontation. And so regarding Taiwan, I can see this as being a very beneficial relationship that, that, that China does not want to rock. No, it doesn't want to rock the boat on Taiwan. It wants Taiwan to keep integrating itself economically into China. And in indeed, I believe Deng Xiaoping's 1993 24-character speech, where it basically said, hide your claws, bide your time, 
you know, it, don't be a world leader and grow your power is still in place. So my prediction would be, and we can test this, over the next 20 years, I think China will still want to keep catching up and therefore will stay moderate to avoid any kind of economic backlash. Uh, regarding World War I and Bateman-Holweg, uh, I'm not quite sure where I would go with this, but in terms of Russia's dependence now on the U.S., uh, yes, on NPR even this morning it was saying Russia really needs the U.S. and we can use this as leverage. Uh, Kerry's over there right now perhaps using this as leverage. They want to get back into the world economy or they want to sell their oil. Is that leverage for us? Yes, because we're not as dependent upon oil from abroad and that is a good thing. But this is part of what I discuss is that the less dependent state in any relationship has that as leverage. And the dependent state knows this. So the dependent state may be growing relatively as China has been, but the less dependent state has some leverage. And we can... I couldn't hear that, but the main, the main point here I would make is that, yes, we can use economic leverage against uh, Russia. And Putin, I think, is, he's not a Hitler. He just wants to maintain himself in power. He doesn't have any reason for wanting to take over Western Europe let or even Eastern Europe. He wants to maintain a popularity at home, and that's what he's doing. Uh, the dollar dominant, uh, yes, the dollar is dominant, New Bretton Woods. I'm not sure where that's going except to say that the U.S. has every reason to want to sustain the U.S. Uh, dollar as the dominant currency in world affairs. Every reason, because it gives us leverage. It gives us leverage when the Chinese say, what are we gonna do with all these dollars? Uh, I think we'll, we'll give them back to you as loans and we'll buy your T-bills so you can keep having large budget deficits. Uh, and as to the final point about domestic pathologies overriding high trade, that can happen. The liberals would say it, it, it's unlikely to happen. And the good example of this, and I mentioned that there is one good case where domestic pathologies led to war, and it's an unusual one. It's 1937, China-Japan, China, where we think it's Japan that starts the, the Sino-Japanese War, but almost all the recent literature based around Chiang Kai-shek's diaries show that it was only Chiang Kai-shek that wanted war in 1937. The Japanese were angry anxious to avoid it. They wanted to go after Russia. And why did he push that? Because he was domestically vulnerable within his own party and with Mao. And he, if he didn't attack Japan, he would lose face as a nationalist. And that's his name of his party, of course. Thanks. Let's grab one more right down here. Hi, my name is Connor Ryan. I work here at the Cato Institute. And my question is for Professor Copeland. Uh, your expectations just seems to be underlining the word rational and the rational actor's assumption in realist foreign policy. And um, uh, to what extent are you doing the same thing with uh, economic security? You're just underlying economic in your argument. And it's still just a realist question about security being the foremost uh, concern about um, uh, uh, states. Let's take a couple more, too. Yeah, let's take uh, the lady. Yeah, the lady there and the gentleman in the yellow shirt. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the presentation. My question is that could you address the issues about TPP, the fast track, and uh, you know, the, the disclosure of the tax? And by economics, by trade, I really emphasize uh, competition and uh, mutual. Uh, the, invisible hand to achieve all the benefit for all the people. But now 
we are talking about whoever want to ask for a full closure of the text, then they will label the politician rather than the other way around. So TPP trade expectations, and one more let's take right down the front. Uh, thank you, uh, Mike Kurtzig. I'm thinking when you got, all you guys are talking over here about Jerry Seinfeld war, what is it good for? And the question I have, many people think that the United States is on its way down. And we've had three major wars, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, costing us billions and trillions of dollars. And simultaneously, we've wasted all of that. And this country itself seems to be falling apart. Lack of funds for education, for infrastructure, for social services, and so on. So does your theory also say that a power like ours that's coming down, by the way, I, do, I agree with you that in the sense that China will never catch up with us because of its population. I think the per capita income is now $6,000, ours is $29,000, $30,000. They can't catch up. But is, do you see that also as a problem? And will we therefore also be more aggressive? Not like the case in the Middle East where we're less aggressive. The broader question, I guess, would be when, when should you expect, when should you have negative expectations of the future trade environment? Good. Yes, thanks. Thanks. Let me start with the last question because it actually relates a lot to my first book, which is all about the rise and decline of great powers. And it argues that the big wars, the major wars indeed, that's the title of the book, uh, the major wars of world history are actually caused by dominant and declining states like the U.S. who foresee a deep and inevitable decline and can't do anything about it. The second book actually links that to the economic trade environment to see under what circumstances you'd fear that deep decline. My argument would be that the U.S. is not declining like, say, the British or the Habsburgs, the Kennedy book uh, from 1980s, that the U.S. is not falling apart uh, like those other powers did. It's not inevitable that the U.S. will, will decline. Now, I should say, on the other hand, uh, especially as, as, a, as a Canadian scholar in the U.S., that I think the U.S. has a lot of work to do to avoid a decline scenario, specifically reforming its domestic politics to avoid gridlock, because the gridlock is actually a problem. Now, that seems to lead to, I think, David and Eric's point, point that domestic politics is brought in through the back door. Well, it's not. What I do is I assume that the state that we're trying to explain has an executive that is only obsessed with national security and is looking out for the good of the whole, that is the good of the state. Now, what might happen is that domestic politics in the other state may intrude upon the other's ability to trade, and that may cause the first state to actually fear decline and go into, into a war mode. Now, what's interesting about that is that, and this gets back to the rational actor assumption from the first point, is that I assume that this first state, the dependent state that fears decline, stays rational and the executive is only concerned about long-term security. But as a rational actor, it should be worried about the irrationality or potential for irrationality on the other side. So this is one thing that, and this, again, Joe Riley's work, The Road Scholar, has shown me, is that the Chinese, when he interviews the Chinese leaders, they are obsessed with all these things we've been talking about. Long-term access, access through the Malacca Straits, access to Middle East oil, and, and, and so forth. And they worry about whether the U.S. will stay rational. That is, whether the U.S. will not will avoid being overcome by domestic pathologies that, that cause a Jackson-Vanek kind of restriction. Remember what happened to detente after the Jackson-Vanek uh, craziness of 1974? They worry about that. Now, this is the last point, and that relates to the TPP. 
Now, this TPP, this was on the NPR this very morning as I was driving here. Elizabeth Warner was saying, oh, this is a stupid thing. It's going to hurt us and so forth, and it's going to help the big corporations. And, I, and she literally said, I don't understand why Obama's doing this. <laughs> well, think about it from a larger geostrategic perspective. China is not in this pact, the TPP. And by keeping China out, this is a subtle form of economic balancing that doesn't hopefully at least, set off this trade security spiral, but gives us some leverage, but gives us extra economic power with our region. That is the region of the Pacific now. And that would help us vis-a-vis a growing China. And indeed, it might be positive if it avoids this long-term decline. It gives us the feeling that we're not relatively declining versus this new rising threat however you measure it, but gives us a sense that, no, things are good. We're going to maintain what Mel Leffler calls uh, this historian about the Truman administration, a preponderance of power over the rising threat, in that case, the Soviet Union. So by keeping China out, but also, guess what Obama's doing? And she complained about this. He's not consulting us. It's a secret pact they've already made. And now we're asked to say yes or no without any amendments. Now, that's part of this strategy that executives use to maintain domestic autonomy for themselves and to keep even this great Congress, the Madisonian Congress that we created, out of harm's way when it comes to geopolitics. Now, you may say the domestic politics still kicks in. I agree. Sometimes Jackson Vanek, it's a bad, it caused the end of detente in my mind. Terrible thing, really. The end of the Second Cold War was caused, I believe, by the Jackson Vanek. Now, that means, though, that we want to avoid that problem again. And good senators understand that. They understand that we got to give them fast-track authority. we got to give them autonomy in the trade realm because they understand the larger geopolitical picture. And we are too beholden to our constituents. We're too beholden to pork barrel politics. And therefore, let's just wink, wink, nudge, nudge, go ahead, Mr. Obama. And of course, the Republicans like it for other reasons. But he's not sec- he's secretly, he's keeping it from everyone else precisely to maintain that domestic autonomy. And again, I would predict that. I mean, I would think that that's part of what you do when you're a smart, rational geopolitician. All right. So we're going to have to cut it off there. A couple housekeeping notes. Um, On your way out the doors, buy a copy of the book. We have them at a low, low bargain basement discount. So buy two or three early Christmas presents, uh, if you like. We have lunch, and it's upstairs. It's up the spiral staircase, which is also where the restrooms are. But before you go, please join me in thanking uh, both Professor Copeland for the book and our discussants for a rollicking panel. Thank you, guys. Thank you.